as you're speaking now, just on that same topic, and Gavin knows this because I'm very pro preventative medicine and I've got a pyramid of when somebody gets a heart attack or stroke, which is they've got vascular disease and they think it's sudden, but it's not. And the second line is medical risk factors like diabetes and the baseline, which is everything is lifestyle. And so there are three elements, which is nutrition, exercise, and stress. And stress is always ignored. Welcome to another Vein podcast. I'm Laura Redman from Cape Town, South Africa. And in the studio today, I've got Dr. Gavin Jones, who's an anesthetist with me in Cape Town, and Dr. Trevor Hall, who's a psychologist also in Cape Town. And our topic today is on the parallel between sports and medicine in both disease and recovery. So I've asked both Gavin and Trevor to join today because they both are sportsmen. Trevor was a professional rugby player and is now involved in managing sports patients post-recovery, which we'll come to. And Gavin is an Ironman athlete and worked with me and we've, we've discussed a lot of disease and sports as well. And I think this follows on well from the last podcast, which was an iron deficiency, as we've seen this in medicine, and that was sort of an interest. Patients don't do well if they have nutrient deficiencies or iron deficiencies, worst ICU and post-operative outcomes, as well as death. And that we actually, this has been extrapolated to sports people as well. And there seems to be a sort of unbalanced and extreme sport, which is similar to disease that the body becomes unbalanced with increased oxidative stress and outcomes or pathology and outcomes are worse. So we've also presented on increased deep vein thrombosis, for example, in athletes. But part of the whole recovery and part of the underlying thing is the body being imbalanced. And we always focus on nutrition. We focus on a balance of exercise. And the one thing we leave out is stress. And Gavin's alluded to in the... Um, recent past of the effect of the mental well-being of patient outcomes as well. So I think Trevor, let's start with you and go backwards. Can you only tell us about what you do with the sports recovery and and the mindset? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Dora. So as you said, I was a ex I was a professional rugby player for quite some time. Um, and obviously, during my my career, I, I had I had a lot of injuries <clears throat> that needed surgery, or just an extended period of time to to recover from. Um, and I noticed w- when I was going through these recovery processes and whatnot that there was always a psychological component to it. Um, and there was something I, I really observed in in my teammates as well, and other people, you know, playing professional rugby that. When they were injured and they were coming back and during their convalescence there was there were certain psychological markers that you could say was were either beneficial to their recovery or detrimental to their recovery now obviously i'm speaking about it in hindsight as a psychologist and having studied some of the stuff you know i mean back then i didn't really have the vocabulary to kind of um, describe what it was that i was observing or experiencing um, but there were definite markers in the injury recovery process that would make it 
better for players when they came back or, or, or not. And some of those markers that I observed, observed even back then were, were, for example, were when players were socially supported, they seemed to recover better. And by social support, I mean, you know, if they had family around them, if they had a tight network of, um, if there was a closeness to friends, if they had um, people in the team, for example, who were, you know, supportive of them, et cetera. I actually yeah. remember one, and those, those players who didn't, um, they seemed to often struggle coming back, uh, back to play. They would often get re-injured. They would often... Um, they would just struggle to kind of integrate back into the team. There would be this sort of negative stuff that, 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 that they would be going through. Um, and then powerful players as well, because obviously rugby is a team sport. So, I mean, from my own personal perspective, um, you know, the, these players, especially if they were powerful characters and they weren't um, recovering well, they could often influence the rest of that team as well. And, and there'd be yeah. a lot of negativity, et cetera, that, that could come from that injury recovery process that wasn't really looked at correctly, you know, or supported through properly. So um, I actually remember one guy in particular, who was a brilliant player. It was when I was playing in France, there was one guy in particular who he, he had a, a bad hamstring tear and he actually wasn't, he wasn't from, uh, the team that I played for, which was Biarritz Olympic, he was from another side that had just that was playing in the second division. But he was a really, really good player. But he really struggled to to integrate himself into the culture of Biarritz and into the team environment and whatnot. He was a really nice guy, but he just it was he was just something about him that was he, he, it was difficult for him, you know. And, and a lot of the guys didn't take well to him and whatnot. And I remember. He had this hamstring tear, and it was quite a bad hamstring tear. I think it was like a grade three uh, tear. I don't know exactly what part of the hammy. But, I mean, that's normally something that somebody would, would come through quite well, you know, if the rehabilitation is correct and the your nutrition is fine and whatnot. And I remember this guy, after a month or two of rehabbing it or whatever, the, how long the protocol was, he had come back and he'd tear it again, and he'd tear it again, and he'd tear it again. And as that process continued, he actually became more and more detached from his teammates and people around him, et cetera. And the, and the support became, became minimal to the point where, I mean, I'm not saying that it was because of that uh, completely that he really, really struggled, but it was definitely a part of his, his convalescence that just wasn't there. I mean, and he yeah. actually ended up retiring because of, from, from a hamstring tear that just wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't heal. So anyway, to, to cut a long story short, you know, I, I took this interest in injury recovery and the psychology of injury recovery and, and, and all of this, and I took it into my master's studies um, for psychology, and I, I uh, did my dissertation on the lived experiences of injured uh, super rugby players in South Africa, just to understand what these players were actually going through and whatnot. And, you know, out of the research, um, you know, came the idea that there are these emotional very much emotional experiences that never really get looked at um, that can cause heightened stress. And as soon as your stress is heightened, that's going to have a really detrimental effect on your physical body and make you more susceptible to, to re-injury. And then off, off that, I created, once I was qualified and whatnot, I created a group therapy intervention for injured rugby players within the professional rugby uh, in professional rugby teams 
that was directed towards um, creating social support, talking through from a therapeutic perspective, the emotional sides of, of uh, the rugby injury, um, a, sh a sharing space for people to kind of share, you know, what skills are working for them, what skills aren't working for them, what to look out for. So it was designed around good therapeutic practice in, 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 from a group perspective. And then what I did from that was I wrote a, uh, a paper on that actual intervention that was published in the South African Journal, Journal of Sports Medicine. And then from there, I created, uh, designed and created, developed the our online program for injured athletes, active people, exercise enthusiasts, which is based on all of that research basically. And, and very simply, it's a six week program that somebody who's injured signs up to, goes through, and it supports them through the, at least the first two kind of stages of injury recovery from a psychological perspective. So it's, it's directed towards um, lessening stress, um, promoting self-awareness and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's where we're at at the moment with all of it. Fantastic. I think it's relevant. And um, Gavin, before I come to you, I'm just going to ask you, do you see a difference in outcome? Because I remember when I listened to your launch and I thought it's quite applicable. So not so much for surgical side and other patients we have like with obesity and that it's a, it's a mindset or something. So do you see a, a difference in outcome if it's a professional athlete versus um, any other sports man or woman? Yeah, I mean, what, what we're seeing at the moment, I mean, obviously, and, and I'm working with a, a lot of sportsmen as well. I actually work with quite a few triathletes at the moment. So, you know, it's like I'll get a whole lot of rugby players and then work with them and then triathletes. It's like these sort of groups of people from different sports, you know, spend time with me and then, and then another group will kind of come through, which is interesting. Um, but I think that... The professional side of things, and this is very much just my opinion, based on obviously some research and whatnot, but, but more my theory about things, is that the professional players seem to, the, the chances of them recovering well are higher than the amateurs. And I think the reason for that is because of, very simply because of focus. So as soon as, you know, somebody is injured in the professional ranks, you've got physiotherapists, well, you've got your, your doctors, your team doctors um, who give good diagnoses. There's like a, a lot of information at the, 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 the fingertips, um, you know, in, in the first week or two diagnosis, prognosis. You've got physiotherapists who are on board. You've got biokineticists. You've got all, a whole team, multidisciplinary team who are there at your beck and call as a professional athlete. Um, in team sports, like I said, there's also the, the chance that you'll have um, social support in that team. If your coaches are good and whatnot too, you know, they can really act as, as, um, as social support for the, for the injured player. So it's, it's all there. And there's less stress, I think, involved in terms of the actual, what you need to recover. I think the other stresses, obviously, you know, the you know, the stress of, am I going to play again? What does this mean financially? You know, the, the, those things are, are, are different stresses as well that, that, that can cause um, okay. problems in the recovery process. But I think what I've seen for, what I've seen with amateur athletes is that 
the risk of re-injury, I would suspect, would be quite high because they don't have those, all of those things have to be, um, they have to be looked for on their own. So an, an amateur triathlete, for example, runner or whatnot, you know, if you tear a calf or hammy or you do a ligament or whatnot, you've got to find a doctor, you know, who, who you trust to kind of get a decent diagnosis, prognosis. You might, if you need surgery, you know, you've got to, you, you might have to find a surgeon or go through multiple surgeons to make sure that, you know, the surgery that you're getting is, is the one that you actually feel comfortable with, et cetera. Okay, thanks, Trev. Um, and I think, Gab, do you want to give some input into what we've been chatting about in theatre recently with the stress-related impact perioperatively? Yes, I, Trevor, I think you've, you've really opened that, that, that whole the stress and the emotional component. I think it's, it's bigger than people realise. We all worry about the actual injury um, or the disease process, but, but certainly stress, I've always said it, it's my own little phrase, stress is the biggest killer. And, and it, you're, when, when you're mentally stressed, emotionally stressed, your body releases all sorts of um, neurokines and, 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 and inflammatory uh, factors that, that then affect the blood vessels. And Laura, this is, this is her, her field of expertise. And that causes inflammation, and then it affects different organs, the brain, the heart, um, the lungs, and, and kidneys, and that can lead to, to various disease processes. So certainly the, the mental stress is a major factor, not just in sports. And, and I, as, as Laura said, I've, I've, I'm a sort of a one-hit wonder, and I, I love to do different sports and different big events. And I've done, I've done numerous events, the Comrades Marathon, uh, the, the I've done 15 doozy canoe marathons. I've done the, the nonstop doozy. I've done the Otter Trail Marathon and, and recently the Ironman. And, and the, the, the stress before the event is, is huge. And certainly the supportive element, training with, with friends or, or, or like-minded people uh, and, and, and having that, 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 that positive affirmation um, goes a huge way. In, and, and even on the events themselves with, with the supporters there, it, it makes a massive difference emotionally, and, and then that that just transpires into into a physical performance. There's 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 something called ERAS, which is enhanced recovery after surgery. It's it's been a it's 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 a it's a movement that's been around. It's been proven to, to be useful. It's been been around for about fifteen years, and it's 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 exactly this, Trevor. It's it's taking a patient who's going for surgery, and it's preparing them preoperatively intraoperatively just before they come when they come into the hospital for their surgery and then and then postoperatively so so a big fact so it's, it's a you mentioned team versus individual this is a, a, a team effort so it involves the surgeon the the anesthetist the the, the nursing staff uh, if, if it's a if it's an orthopedic surgery as, as you've had many uh, it'll it'll involve the physiotherapists or bicarnetists um, in, in Laura's practice, it'll involve, she's got a, a, a team here that she works with, and there's nursing sisters, wound care sisters, she's got an ultrasonographer. So, so this, this whole team sits together with a patient before they even come into hospital, they discuss the disease process, they'll discuss what, what they, they are going to expect uh, in the build-up to surgery, they opt in, then they have a plan and optimize their nutrition, they opt, you know, if, they, if they're anemic, they'll then uh, put them onto iron tablets and optimize the 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 
sort of uh, hemoglobin or, or blood iron levels so that the, the potential for, for a, a good outcome is, is optimized. Then when they come into, into hospital for their surgery, I, I always try and see my patients preoperatively. So I'll go and see them on the ward. If they're particularly anxious and we've had some, some children recently have had numerous operations and, and you know, children can, can behave uh, differently for each anesthetic and sometimes they, they're as happy as Larry and they'll hold the mask and go off to sleep and other times they'll scream blue murder and and you know you're the absolute devil and mom's the devil or dad's the devil whoever's in there so so sometimes I'll, I'll meet with the parents and and, the, and the, the children as well beforehand explain to them what's going to happen um, and, and then discuss the, the the need for for a pre-medication so and that's we use anxiolytic drugs which then uh, calm uh, you know, help reduce the, the mental anxiety and obviously the stress. And, and then uh, the, the sort of preoperative nutrition. So not having, in the olden days, we, we, you'd say, well, if you've got surgery the next day, you'd say, don't have anything to eat from six o'clock at night and maybe they'll have surgery the next afternoon. So it'd be 18, sometimes 24 hours where, where a patient would be starved. And that's, that's shown to be detrimental to the, to the recovery. So, so, uh, the, the, the fasting guidelines are getting tighter and tighter and tighter and to the point now we, you, know, we, you need an empty stomach just to prevent regurgitation and aspiration uh, during surgery. So, so we, we, we recommend patients have a light meal up to six hours before surgery. So, so we actually encourage them to have a small meal up to six hours before surgery and, and, and as, uh, adults can have clear fluids. So not particularly, not like milk, or, or, or coffee with cream, but, but clear fruits such as apple juice or energides, uh, where they can and they can have that up to two two hours uh, before surgery, so that their physiology is, is optimal. Uh, I've seen it with patients that they, that are actually terrified preoperatively, even though I've discussed it, they 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 just completely anxious about their surgeries, and they young twenty year old adults for wisdom teeth. I had three yesterday, and two of them had heart rates above one hundred and twenty. And that's sure. just from the stress and anxiety. So now they, they actually need more anesthetic agents to get them to sleep. And, and uh, you know, the, you know, once they're asleep, after about three or four minutes, their heart rate comes down, everything normalizes, versus patients that are absolutely calm and relaxed. They need less anesthetic agents. Their blood pressures are more stable. So physio physiologically, they're better. And then, uh, and then obviously, post-operatively, we've all got to minimize pain. So you discuss the pain with them beforehand. You discuss the pain techniques, the pain management that we're going to we're going to employ, so that they they're part of the whole process, and and they're not they're not just at the, the beck and call of a you know of a of a, of a nursing sister who might be looking after ten patients and may not get to them you know for yeah. two hours after they, they their pain is severe. So so and again that that affects the, the recovery if they if they're in pain they don't mobilize properly so they. they you know, depending on the type of surgery, they may not breathe properly. Then they may be at a higher risk of, of having a pulmonary infections. If you know, they don't move and get out of bed, they're at a high risk of getting DVTs or, or thrombosis in the legs, which can then in themselves shoot off and, and, and cause a pulmonary embolus, which can cause death if, if it's big enough. So, so, and then again, just, just delayed, delayed um, healing and, 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 it was after sort of hip and knee replacements, similar things. So, so certainly the this this whole mental preparation and and team approach is absolutely critical. And and I, 
we're going back to the topic of the talk, the parallel between surgery and, 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 and sports and disease and recovery. And I think there's, there's very much a, a, a strong parallel between the two. Well, what you're talking about, Gavin, is so important because I, and that, that's one of the things that, that uh, in the comeback um, program, that, that it was, it's the first task set in the first week. It's called actually information gathering. So, you know, straight after an injury, we know through research that, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be diagnosis, confusion and diagnostic anxiety and prognostic anxiety as well. It's exactly what you're talking about. And the, um, you know, the whole idea is that the, is that the person who's injured gathers as much information as they can about what's happened to them, um, what they can expect physically, what they can expect psychologically, emotionally, um, to basically prepare so that they've got, I mean, we know psychologically, as soon as there's unclarity about anything in life, it doesn't matter if it's just if it's surgery or um, work-wise, relationship-wise, where there's unclarity and a feeling of not being in control of something, at least, there's stress. You know, if you want to stress somebody out, you just put them into a position where they're uncertain about things. You, uh, you, you, uh, you're not transparent with information. You withhold information. And then you make them feel as though they're not in control. You've got a very, very stressed individual. And um, so that's one of the, you know, with the, the, the protocols of injury recovery, especially with sports people and, and um, uh, exercise enthusiasts or active people who go through this program, the first week is all about gathering information and then also writing it out, you know, to, to help process that and whatnot. So, so in my research with, with, with for uh, generally and for comeback, et cetera, obviously, I mean, I read a lot of uh, peer-reviewed journal articles and whatnot across all, you know, orthopedics, um, um, anesthesia, anything to do with surgery. Um, and I came up across a few articles that talk about trauma and you know, because because that's that obviously stress, the way stress manifests, there's some sort of trauma. And psychologically speaking, trauma, you know, I would define it as a, any event, you know, that, that takes place or experience that shatters your basic assumptions about yourself and life. And, and, that, and that manifests in a physical response. You know, stress, it's not just a mental thing. It's a physical, it's an actual physical response of the body. And a couple of the, a couple of the, the articles that I, that I read, I actually just stumbled upon, were talking about how the body, even though you might be sedated or in an aesthetic, the body still registers that physical trauma that can get taken into, you know, into conscious life. And I was just wondering what your, what your take is on that and, and how you see that manifest sometimes. De definitely, uh, Trevor. So as I said, uh, and I've seen patients coming in with, with high heart rates and one, one of the things we track is an, an ECG or EKG the American listeners and, and you, you get a, a EKG waveform or ECG waveform and there's heart changes shows that there's stress on the heart they're, they're, and it's showing that the heart's under strain and may, may not be receiving enough, enough oxygen or maybe working too hard for the oxygen it's, 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 it's receiving. And uh, I, I've seen it with patients under anesthesia, if, if there's particularly painful stimuli, even though they're not aware of it, they're not aware they're having the surgery, the body can still sense the painful stimuli and you'll see the blood pressure will go up, the, 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 the heart rate can go up, and then even the, even the changes on the ECG shows that the heart's under strain. So you've got to correct that. So you've 
got to give more pain medication that, that, that acts rapidly. It maybe have to increase the oxygen, slow the heart rate down so that it's not, not demanding as much oxygen. Uh, so, so as you asked, even under anesthesia, you can, you can actually see the changes from this trauma. Um, and, and the trauma would be the surgeon cutting a bone or, or cutting through skin or pulling on, on, on various organs. Uh, you, even you're in, in, in events, and it happens quite often in swimming, and you, uh, patients will have heart attacks or MIs and, and, and they, they, they die. And uh, they, I think from, from an Ironman perspective, a training perspective, the biggest fear that most of these athletes have is, is the swim. And before that swim, I can tell you 90% of them don't want to get into that water. It's, you know, they, their heart rate's up. They get into the water. It's probably fairly cold. And, and the, that those uh, athletes who, who have that sort of a critical, um, um, they, they're sort of on, on the knife edge with their regular training, they, they, they do okay. So same as mountain biking. When, when you're cycling, you're okay. So when you're mountain biking, you're going up a, a steep hill. I don't know if you've, you probably do mountain biking, but that heart rate shoots up. It's incredible how, how, how it shoots up. So you can be fine on, a, on an average ride, but as soon as you're going up a, a, a steep hill or you're jumping into water and swimming, that heart, heart rate goes up and it, 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 it fl you, know, you, you flip over that, that sort of threshold from, from what is ex you know, an acceptable oxygenation to not acceptable. And the heart, heart then is, suffers ischemia and then potentially a, a full-blown heart attack. So interesting. I find it so it's just so amazing how the how the body and mind kind of work together. You know, because it's because what you're describing, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You know that that heart rate going up under anesthetic, and you know the um, I said, well, I mean, this was part of the studies as well, is that they actually measured the cortisol levels as well in the body under anesthetic, and seeing that basically it, it's the stress response that's activated, yes. and you know, and and that's. You, I being somewhat of a psycho, I wouldn't label myself as a psychoanalyst, but um, I, I do use a lot of psychoanalytic ways of looking at things, which do, and in psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic thinking, it's all about the unconscious. You know, what's, what we're repressing into the unconscious and how that manifests in, in conscious um, behavior that, that, that we have. But are, you, are you trying to ask if you get a psychological effect from having a surgical procedure like a trauma that you're under anesthetic and you're experiencing pain so the body does see that as pain but it's yes. but that's a physiological response yes. I, don't, I don't think we could ever do a, a study to, to figure that out but i don't think you it would be a big part because I think it's a purely physiological response. Like Gavin explained, if somebody's cycling, your heart rate goes up, or if you if you touch a stove and burn your hand, you know you're going to get the same physiological response. It doesn't always necessarily have to end up in a emotional response. You might have more insight there, but so what's what's interesting with with a lot of these players, and there's been a few, like I said, I've read a couple of studies on it, psychological studies on it, is that you know the when the when the body experiences trauma in any way, shape, or form, where that stress response is activated, it can then manifest in different responses and different behaviors later on down the line. So you know the the, the registering of pain, for example. 
can then be yeah. overblown. So from a surgery, and, and this is pretty, you know, again, we'll have to look at actual studies that have been done. I'm not too sure. But if there's somebody who's had surgery before, um, where you're cutting through bone or you, you know, you're doing what you need to do in surgery, where there's been that physical trauma to the body, um, where there might be heightened senses of pain and the stress response that's activated because of that, because it's a repeated there's a repeated action of, of pain within the physiological body. And then what happens is quite often is that the, the conscious mind, because it perhaps doesn't understand what this pain means, will latch onto some sort of painful memory or um, some sort of conscious awareness, you know, in that present moment, and then attach that stress response to something that they've perhaps constructed in their own mind. Which, which may which not may be related be to the surgery. Not, not may necessarily. Not yeah. no, but may but they're not conscious at surgery. They're under general. So even no, if what? they're not conscious, conscious, do you think they're going to, they can't have an attachment to something? What I think what Trevor is saying is that even under surgery, when there's a, because surgery is, is it's traumatic. They, they don't recall, they don't recall what happens to them under surgery, but the post-operatively, if they experience pain, post-operatively, there is stress on the surgery. So, so but, but their mind is processing the stress and the, the, the stress response to the painful stimuli or, or, or the trauma, even though they're not aware of it. They know something's happened. But, but I mean, I think it's actually an interesting point. Like, we, we have no idea. If we cut him, because Gavin will say to me, if I'm changing from endovascular to actually cutting with the blade, he'll say, oh, have you changed procedure because he's seen the blood pressure's gone up, whatever. So we always know that way. And so in theory, yes, that patient's actually feeling pain and I'm cutting through their skin and <laughs> with the blade, which is barbaric. Um, and he will just adjust the meds, but they're not conscious. So like the facts, it's just, I mean, I'm not arguing for against, it's an interesting point. Does that actually leave that person with some emotional trauma, even though they're under general anesthetic? I don't know. Well, if, well from the psychological <laughs> literature, you'd be left with some, you would have a stress response. So, so the stress, so whether there's an emotion, because there won't be an emotion obviously attached to it while you're unconscious, and there, there might not even be pain attached to it, but the body will register that stress response. And the unconscious, you know, I think it was in the words of Jung or, or, or Freud, I'm not too sure, one of them, the, the unconscious has no sense of humor, you know, so it will attach to that, that trauma response or that stress response anything that, that, that it feels like it, it needs to, for example. So when the person comes out of surgery, they, although they might not, they, well, they're not gonna remember the, the actual, uh, the cutting or the, the repair or whatnot, but they'll carry into their convalescence um, that stress response, a heightened, a, a heightened sensitivity to stress, put it that way. Yes. But, but in essence, the stress response you speak about for that, or trauma or exercise is all actually the same physiological response that we've all spoken about if it's surgery, anesthetic, or sports or post recovery, because the natural stress response is your sympathetic response. Correct. Correct. If if under threat, so I think there's a big difference between you know riding um, a mountain bike up a hill 
and having the heart rate go up because the, the body needs, needs blood and oxygen to um, a threat and then this, the sympathetic nervous system switching on and that whole stress response at HPA axis activation. It's very different. No, so your, your sympathetic response is standard. If you, so if you're fearful of giving a speech or somebody's attacking you or you're under surgery or you're riding the mountain bike up the hill, you're all having a sympathetic response, which is actually the same thing. Your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, et cetera. But who are the people you end up with a behavioral change or emotional trauma from that? Just people probably you have had fear in the situation or some other element. Well, yeah. So, I mean, as far as I understand the, the stress response, you know, it's an evolutionary thing that, that, that's, uh, that we've developed over time or just part of our design to keep us out of trouble and keep us alive. So, you know, if I'm walking in the street and, you know, a car suddenly comes out of nowhere um, and starts bearing down on me, I'll, set, I'll have a, almost an immediate response of, um, you know, feeling fearful. So I'll get the, the feeling of fear. And that comes off my amygdala and my midbrain detecting um, danger, which activates the pituitary gland, which then activates the, the adrenal cortex, which starts pumping out adrenaline, and then later on cortisol to keep that, that, that stress response going. And blood drains from my um, non-vital organs and whatnot into my extremities. And then sort of like that, um, I jump out of the way. So it's a very, very sudden um, sort of response to threat. Okay. Um, so although the, uh, uh, and I mean, you guys are doctors, so I mean, you know, I don't want to talk about things I'm not overly sure of, but if I'm exercising, for example, I don't necessarily see my exercise as a threat. So it's not really the stress response that's, that's involved. It might be the same um, organs and whatnot that are, that, that are going through, what doing what they need to do to pump blood for me to exercise. But the attachment of the potential threat of something is not there. So what I'm saying for, for what I read with these uh, journal articles and whatnot about the stress response being activated under anesthetic, it was very, very interesting for me. And, I, and that's why I wanted to ask Gavin about it, because um, there seems to be evidence that under anesthetic, the body um, registers the surgery as threat. And that gets taken from the unconscious state into the rest, into conscious awareness. And now there's a potential for um, the, the feeling of stress to be associated with a multitude of things in conscious life. See, that, that's what yeah, I was asking you earlier. I think that is interesting. And I don't think we've actually ever considered it. And actually, as, you, as you're speaking now, just on that same topic, and Gavin knows this because I'm very pro preventative medicine and I've got a pyramid of when somebody gets a heart attack or stroke which is they've got vascular disease and they think it's sudden but it's not and the second line is medical risk factors like diabetes and the baseline which is everything is lifestyle and so there are three elements which is nutrition exercise and stress and stress is always ignored and when I was also reading about that there was we're looking at preventative sort of medicine and aging and you've got little there's telomeres in your cells, which when they're shortened, your cell ages and you die. And stress can have an effect on them. But 
the stress that does it, and it was described as chronic, unpredictable stress. So like if they said, if someone's going to punch you at two o'clock every day, that it's not actually that type of stress because you expect it's, it's going to come. But it's those small daily stresses of being in traffic or your boss shouts at you or something like that, that end up actually aging and causing that chronic stress, which goes on that bottom of the pyramid, which ultimately ends in cardiovascular disease like we see. So you're quite right. I think it's that stress with a threat basically ends up as traumatic or in physical illness. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting. I, Laura, just take, take heed of that because uh, every time you shout at me in theater, um, <laughs> my patients move. <laughs> it adds, adds, years, adds years of my life. Because you're waking them up, Drew, and anesthetic is going to be very traumatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. quite often. Pardon? I never shout. Never shout. <laughs> we'll have to change our theater to make the patient as calm and comfortable <laughs> and the anesthetic as possible. Correct. You shout it and I don't play the lights in music. <laughs> <laughs> Psychologically speaking, it's, it's also interesting because there are so many things as well that, that you can do to minimize stress. You know, you know, once, you know, life is stressful, things are going to happen. You know, we, we actually built to endure stress, which is, you know, something to, to think about. We actually, as human beings, a lot of the time we seek out stress. I mean, playing sports, running, Gavin, doing the stuff that you're doing. I mean, if you strip away the layers of that behavior, you, you know, you're actually seeking out stress-inducing stuff you know and and we we built to to become resilient with it and to withstand it um and to and to actually profit from it as well and um so there are but there are things that 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 you can do that people can do to really minimize that stress especially post-operatively and post-injury um things like meditation and visualization um i see that there's all this cold water um stuff in cape town going on at the moment which is quite fun and there's a whole community around it as well which you get the social support too so you know the all of these things and uh, like i was saying earlier comeback is really designed what we did was we took the you know, after reading hundreds if not a thousand um journal articles on on what benefits people after they've, they've, they've injured whether it's just injury recovery or post-surgery as well psychologically and um we saw that uh information gathering so gathering as much information as possible meditation and visualization uh journaling um which is also quite an interesting thing to do to actually write out what happened in the injury what things were like before the injury what they want goal setting all of these things and then tracking tracking your your recovery so um having a visual representation of how your recovery is going through uh, across mood pain sleep and motivation and then obviously social support so those five task sets we've included in the comeback program um, to help people through that six weeks which gets them through that kind of what they call the emotional upheaval stage of, of, of the convalescence basically after after injury and after surgery Okay, no, Trev, that's great. I think it's probably probably time you started a post-operative recovery phase, something we've <laughs> rather ignored. 
Um, okay, guys, I'm going to need to start wrapping up for time. I don't know if you have any last comments. I think any conversation would be would be empty without mentioning social media. And and I think social media plays a big role in in, in gathering information uh, from sports and surgery. Uh, but I think you also need to be aware because a lot of people do will read up. Um, and they may not get the right information. Um, they'll get a plethora of information. And Trevor, you, you said it, you know, from 30 years ago, how, how sports has changed. You know, the, the information and the tracking, uh, is, it's, it's come on in leaps and bounds. It's so scientific now. Um, but I, I, I think it, it's, it really is important for, for um, and I'm going to talk about patients, to really have a, a good discussion with the with their uh, with the surgeons and the, or the medical team um, around their disease process. And, and because so many people still to this day, they walk out of a, of a doctor's office and they still, they, they're not really sure you know, about their disease process. Yeah. And I think also, you know, for doctors um, and other health professionals, professionals as well to actually bear that in mind, you know, how important mm -hmm. that information um, sharing side of the of, of the whole experience, you know, pre preoperatively, postoperatively, how actually what a huge difference it can make um, yeah. to to their convalescence. Thank you, thanks, guys. So I think yeah, those are the basic keys from each of us. My side from surgery to prepare patient, Gavin. You need to make sure that patients are canned anesthetic now and no trauma, and review in the post op. And I think we established the importance of the physiological stress with a threat. It's the bad one. Okay, but thanks so much for joining. I think it was very valuable. Great discussion. Well, thank you so much. Nice to meet you, Gavin. Um,